0: Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: Support for this show comes from Slack.
2: You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a
1: few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. is a legitimate interest in feeling safe and there's a legitimate interest in free speech, um, I do think that there are ways in which those two can be in conflict and, and we shouldn't sugarcoat around that. And I think in those cases, the only principled solution is to side with free speech.
2: Hello and welcome to the Ezra on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So I'm glad to be here, I'm glad you're here, but I'm glad to be here this week in particular because podcasts are often, I find, a better place to work out a complicated topic than other spaces are. Um, last week, Harper's Magazine released an open letter on justice and open debate. It's signed by a huge number of people, uh, well over 100, including some like very big names like... Uh, J.K. Rowling, Noam Chomsky, David Brooks. Uh, It's a a very glittering group of pretty well-known writers. Um, It also includes my colleague, Matthew Iglesias, and my co-host, On the Weeds. And I've complicated feelings on the letter because I actually agree with most of what it just literally says. And I think that a lot of the signatories are weaponizing values and an approach to intellectual culture and debate that I hold, and I don't always think they do. And so my frustration is not really with the letter as a text, but it is with the letter as a political document, as a jockeying document, which I think is being used for and was particularly being used for on Twitter. So I tweeted out um, quickly, and Twitter was not the right place to have this conversation, that debates about free speech are often debates about power. And there's a lot of power in holding The position of free speech defender. I completely believe that statement, but because Matt had sent the letter, it got taken as a subtweet of him and created a weird thing, uh, which was very frustrating. Um, So I want to have a conversation about this, but I don't want to have it in a way where people think I'm talking about uh, my colleague and one of my absolute oldest friends. So I've asked Yasha Monk to come on the show. And Yasha is also somebody I have great respect for. He is a political scientist. Um, he's been on the show a couple of times before. He's a columnist at The Atlantic. And one thing that I think is particularly interesting about him in this moment, in addition to being a part of the letter, he has founded a new organization called Persuasion, which is, I think it was actually a couple of days before the letter that he did it. But I would say it is best explained as an online journal, newsletter, group, social community meant to defend the ideas of the letter, um, and in particular to defend a kind of open-minded traditional liberalism that he and some of his co-founders that include very well-known people, John Haidt and Francis Fukuyama, both of whom have been on the show, feel is is under siege. So I wanted to have Yasha on because I think we agree on a lot. We also emphasize different things in a way that I think is useful but also I felt like we could have this conversation in a slightly more tangible way and about the ideas that are behind it than I could with some other folks. So as always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Box.com. But here is Yasha Monk. Yasha Monk, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me back on.
2: I think you've been here now. This is the third time we've done this. I believe it's a fourth, Ezra. That's not I No, I did yours once. I think you've only done this one twice. Maybe I did yours twice. We've done a lot of podcasts. New We've
1: together. done a lot of podcasts back and forth. I'm pretty sure <laughs> this is my fourth time on your podcast, but I may be wrong. I'm sure there's there's enthusiasts of your podcast who have a running town somewhere.
2: You're you're in the you're in the pantheon. Then there are very few four time four time guests, but but this is the first time we're coming we're we're coming together in in the midst of dispute. So I'm excited about this one in particular. Um, I, I, so I want to talk about the Harper's letter and the conversation you and I sort of did or didn't have after that. Um, and and try to have a different version of it. But I actually want to start before that. And one reason I want to have you on to have this conversation was because a couple of days before the Harper's Letter came out, you launched a journal called Persuasion. Um, and you DM me about it saying you want to talk about it on the, on the show and said, like, I'd love to talk about it. I don't think you're really going to like this project, but, but, but I think we should discuss it. So I'd like to hear what persuasion is, like what it's responding to, and also why you thought I wouldn't like it.
1: Sure, well, let me do the first one first and then sort of try to figure out why I, I assumed the second thing, um, which, I'm not, which I don't have a straightforward answer to, actually. I have been working for a long time, as you know, and as listeners to this podcast know, on the threat of populism, and particularly right-wing populism. I continue to believe and argued very clearly and explicitly when I launched persuasion that that is the biggest danger Uh, to democracy around the world. Now, I also have this fear that at the very moment when we should be uh, trying to stand up for the values of a free society, to stand up for things like free speech and due process, most explicitly, most proudly, articulating those values in a constructive way, a lot of people are sort of careful about owning those values. Um, You know, sometimes Donald Trump, for example, invokes the concept of free speech in a sort of trollish way, uh, and so suddenly some people think, well, perhaps that's a right-wing concept and we really shouldn't be defending free speech. Perhaps that's an idea of the right. And I worry very much about the way in which that hampers our ability to fight against those political forces. And I also worry about some of the substantive uh, injustices that we might impose on our own side. I've been uh, doing interviews with some of the people who have been fired under uh, you know, really quite shocking circumstances. I uh, talk to a lot of uh, uh, writers and journalists who fear that if they, you know, say the wrong thing at any point, if they diverge from consensus among uh, progressives, uh, that might have very real professional consequences for them. And and the people I'm worried about here are not those particular journalists, um, or not mostly those particular journalists. It's for our ability to actually have honest debates that lead us to an accurate view of the world, to real solutions, and frankly, an ability. Uh, to vanquish some of those uh, very devoted enemies of the free society on the right. And so for all of those reasons, I've launched this community. Um, It's going to be both a publication and really a set of people who come together and debate and think through the world and get to know each other and form an esprit de corps. Um, I call it persuasion because we are committed to three basic principles. Uh, The first of which is that we want to live in a free society in which all individuals get to pursue a dignified life irrespective of who they are. The second is that we are uh, deeply committed to the social value of the practice of persuasion and therefore uh, we will defend free speech and free inquiry and due process. Uh, And the third is that, and this is I think very important, we want to be animated by a spirit of persuasion. So rather than sort of mocking or trolling those who disagree with us rather than saying, Nana, Nana, you know, you all are idiots. Um, We want to actually make a positive, uh, optimistic, affirmative case for our values and hopefully get a lot of people uh, to join this project. Um, So if you're interested in that, sorry to get the plug in, Ezra. Go to www.persuasion.community, and, and it'll be really great to join us.
2: Now, you can't just a, text something to a number and persuade. You can't persuade text to, the number,
1: no. But perhaps just, that's a good idea. It's, you know? it's very, it's very archaic of you. Persuade at you know seven seven seven. No, um, uh, now I don't know why. I guess my sense is that you are skeptical of some of this project because you aren't equally worried about some of the things that are going on uh, on parts of the left, but you don't see any illiberal tendencies on parts of the left, and that therefore you would assume that uh, anything that's criticism of our own side or anything that is foregrounding some of the ways in which many people uh, feel unfree to speak out, some of the ways in which people get fired... Um, uh, that that is a distraction from the most important thing, and that you know this is blowing a uh, uh, you know uh, 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 what is it a molehill into a mountain or a mountain to a molehill? Um, you, you'll ex- you'll explain the expression. Mo- to me a molehill as well. into a mountain. Yes. So
2: let me let me try to process that for a second. Um, first, I a hundred percent think the left has illiberal tendencies. So that is, <laughs> and I feel like I'm often on the, the receiving end of them. So um, that, that is definitely not something I believe. I don't want to tell you you're wrong, That I would find, it, it's funny because I think I'm committed to all these same values. And this will come up in in, in the Harper's letter too. The difficulty I have with some of the, or what, what feels to me like organizing in this space, is it? And I'm not accusing you of this. Um, and it's one reason I felt like I was surprised you thought I wouldn't like your project. But but what I do see very often is what feels to me like a weaponization of values I hold and care about on behalf of people who are using them to position or to gain advantage. Often people who have quite a bit of power already. And that doesn't mean there aren't cases I worry about. So for instance, um, the firing of David Shore uh civic analytics C- Civis. civis'm uh, sorry civis, yeah. <laughs> yeah civis
1: there's many things co- confusing about that company, including the name
2: yes, and so, like a lot of people, I like signal boosted the pieces about how that's bad and I mean that was just a like an unbelievably terrible lapse in judgment um by that organization that has also i think probably done it tremendous harm. it's very hard to trust a data analytics organization that fires people for doing their job of putting data out into the world. So like, it is simply not the case that I don't think there are problems here. What I think I find difficult in this conversation is two things. One is I try to take really seriously the question of whether or not people feel free to speak, feel free to make mistakes, and free to be heard. And something that I sometimes feel like I take more seriously than some of the folks in this debate is that this is something that people on all sides of it want and that many of the people who are often associated or called illiberal by one side are, I think, in a practical way under much more daily threat in terms of their speech and in terms of their movement and in terms of their ability to express themselves in life, um, like trans people say, than some of the people who are driving it. And so I would feel better about it oftentimes if I saw that more recognized. And so one of the thing, one of the things that is always a separating line for me is do I see the people in the debate practicing the kind of code of conduct and the kind of generous listening and taking other ideas seriously and trying to protect everyone in it? Or do I see them protecting themselves and kind of throwing bombs? And this is not somewhere out put persuasion, but one thing that annoyed me about the Twitter debate this week, which is what I had ended up responding to with that tweet that a lot of free speech debates are about power, um, is that I saw a lot of people who seemed to me to be as a liberal, as willing to bandwagon and dunk and um, dismiss and refuse to hear as anyone else, suddenly claiming themselves to be um, like uh, icons of free speech and that's where I worry about it. I worry about how much empathy there really is in this debate because I want to see a public square where a pretty wide array of people feel safe to speak. But that means more than just saying free speech is important. It also means being quite attentive to things beyond like the Twitterverse that keep people from being able to speak freely.
1: I think that is very important. And again, that's one of the reasons why, for my own community, I chose this term persuasion and why one of our explicit goals is this idea of persuading rather than. Uh, you know, trolling or or dismissing. Um, you know, I think that comes up in a lot of debates about social justice. So, you know, if we talk about somebody like Robin DiAngelo um, and this book, White Fragility, I have, you know, very, very fundamental disagreements with Robin DiAngelo about how we can build a more fair and vibrant multi-ethnic democracy. But I try, and perhaps not always we'll succeed, not to just more control her because I understand that many of the people who are attracted to that book, many of the people who don't really know what's in it before they buy it, or probably don't know what's in it before they recommend it, are driven to it because of a deep concern for remedying the racial injustices in this country that are all too real. And that should be at the absolute forefront of our politics in terms of trying to to, to remedy those, right? Um, so so I agree with you on, on the importance of taking seriously the motivations uh, of people in the debate. And I agree with you that we should try to have mutually respectful discourse. Now, I I do also think that, uh, first of all, the intentions of uh, persuasion has been caricatured quite a bit. The intentions of the Harper's letter has been caricatured quite a bit. The Harper's letter itself actually very carefully uh, emphasizes the importance, for example, of making uh, progress towards real racial equality in this country. And, you know, one of the objections against it often is, oh, these people just don't want to be criticized on the internet, which is a slightly weird point, because certainly I, when I decided to sign that letter, and I assume most of the others, were absolutely aware that there's going to be a lot of blowbacks. If I didn't want to be criticized on the internet, the best course of action would have been not to sign this letter. Um, but there's a distinction between robust criticism uh, open criticism on the internet, uh, all of which I think uh, is absolutely fine, uh, and people fearing that they might lose their jobs, that they might be portrayed as terrible humans and bigots because they happen to disagree on you know, one of 20 or 30 progressive uh, positions where, for whatever reasons, uh, they disagree with the prevailing majority within progressive institutions. Um, and I do think that some of the responses to this letter uh, have been in that vein. They haven't been just to criticize the letter. They have been to suggest that, uh, you know, the letter makes them unsafe. And I, I really don't understand how that might be possible in a letter that simply says we want, uh, more free speech.
2: I want to put a pin in the letter and I want to put a pin in the idea of unsafe because we're going to come back to that. I think it's a very important conversation for us to have where there probably is some disagreement. Um, but I want to talk about Robin DiAngelo for a sec. So Robin D'Angelo, the author of White Fragility, that book came out a couple years ago. It's shot up the bestseller list in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. And I think it's actually a useful book for this, for this conversation. So I often talk on the show about um, arguments I think are sort of Sixty percent wrong and forty percent right, and like the forty percent is important. And it's a little bit how I feel about D'Angelo's book. Which, if you ask me, is that a good book? I would tell you no. Like, if you, like if you ask me, like, do I recommend it? The answer is no. I agree with the critique that it is totalizing and reductive. And if you fully buy into its framework, there's no space for internal critique. Right? Like everything becomes an example of white fragility, and nothing can be actually discussed. That said, I have run newsrooms. And I have both in that context and in my context as a reporter who tries to understand these issues spoken to a lot of people of color who often in meetings, often in debates, experience white fragility, right? They say something that makes white people feel like they are being attacked. And all of a sudden, like... They're not given a huge range of tolerance. They're not given like a, a, a lot of space. What they are done. What happens is they're shut down. And so, to me, while like I think D'Angelo's book goes too far in a bunch of different ways. What I think is valuable about it, and what I think it makes it useful for this discussion, is that it, it is actually trying to trace, away, trace a way, trace a method through which speech gets shut down, which is that if when you speak. The people who hold power in the room and hold the majority in the room, which tends to be true if you're a black person, um, talking to white people, can begin to feel extremely and they take what you say as it makes them feel defensive, it makes them feel attacked because like there is a lot of sensitivity around these issues. There's like a terror of being called or seen as a racist, and that leads to like backlash. That's like a way people don't feel safe speaking. And like, I want to use that term very advisedly here. Like, I have heard from many people for many years about how hard it is to speak in rooms where it is not hard for me to speak. And it is that kind of ecosystem level or atmospheric fear of speaking that I sometimes, that often I feel like puts me on the other side of this because I feel like it's not being recognized or what people are reacting to is not being well recognized, which is something that is like a, a genuine impediment to their ability to speak freely. That doesn't like, again, make everything Danjo's book great, but I think it should make I think what the value of D'Angelo's book is it should make a lot of white people think about the ways in which they do not create spaces through their own reactions where people feel able to speak because they're so defensive. And when you make people empower defensive, like to go back to what you were just saying, Yasha, that is a threat to your job. That is a threat to your advancement. It is a threat to your promotion. It is a threat to whether or not you get the cover two months from now. And it's
1: a real deal. So let me make a distinction between... um, sort of what the, let me let me talk about a completely different context, right? Um, so I've been writing a lot about populism and sometimes the critique I get from people who either want to defend populism or who, uh, you know, have a deeper sort of opposition to the norms and practices of liberal democracy is to say, oh, you know, you're just saying that all of these populists are crazy and that all the people who are voting for the populists are crazy. Um, And that we shouldn't have any sympathy for that. And so you're just saying that everything is wonderful right now in this moment. And my response in that context is to argue that that's just not the case. That my book on this topic, The People versus Democracy, goes deep into the structural reasons why uh, populists are popular at this moment. Uh, And I actually think there's a lot to the critique that Political malcontents on both sides of a political spectrum have uh, about our establishment, about our institutions. There's real reasons why they're angry. Now, that doesn't mean that Donald Trump is actually going to help solve any of those things. It doesn't mean that he's a good solution to any of those things, and that makes me, at a very fundamental level, uh, an opponent of his. Now, I don't want to compare Donald Trump and Robin DiAngelo. That's not the point I'm trying to make. Uh, But I think in a similar way, I can acknowledge and wholeheartedly agree with you that um there are real power dynamics uh, in this country uh, that a lot of people who are disadvantaged because of their race because of their socioeconomic status or because of any number of other things uh, don't feel as as confident and comfortable speaking up for themselves um in a meeting uh, that when they do they can be punished for it and shut down for it uh, and we absolutely uh, should see that as one of the threats to to to, reckon, to realizing a a fair multi-ethnic democracy, a truly free society. I'm absolutely on board with that. Now, where I disagree is that uh, Robin DiAngelo can be helpful in actually constructing that world. And that's because I don't just think she's a little kooky or she goes a little bit too far or something like that. I think her values are fundamentally different from the ones we need to embrace to build that kind of society. And here's why. Um, She believes that there's something fundamental that white people have in common. And that in order to overcome these racial injustices, white people should take on a much more developed and explicit white identity. And while she has a negative view of that identity, um, I think that that's actually surprisingly close to some of the things that people on the far right would want. Um, And I fear that the people on the far right have a better strategic sense of this. But if you really are trying to reinforce and exacerbate the extent to which white people feel that they have a group identity and that that is more important an attribute of theirs than anything else, they are more likely to eventually invest it with positive than with negative feeling. Um, The same goes for the kind of relationships we can have in society across ethnic lines. When you look at the descriptions that Robin DiAngelo gives of what interactions between uh, white and non-white people might be like, she describes every time that a white person interrupts a non-white person as you know, using the whole force and machinery of white supremacy in order to shut them down. Now, undoubtedly, there may be circumstances where that is the case. But a lot of the time uh, in, in friendships I've had and relationships I've had with people who are non-white, we interrupt each other all of the time because that's a way of being excited together, of um, sort of giving each other affirmation, of completing each other's thoughts, of moving along the conversation. Um And, you know, it makes me wonder whether Robin DeAngelo has had those friendships and has had those relationships, because I really don't think that in those moments, uh, what we were doing uh, was this sort of power relationship in which uh, I am loading it down on my friend uh, with all the power of white supremacy. And I think if we thought about it in those terms, we couldn't actually have been real friends. And so for me, uh, the critique of, white fragility and Robin DiAngelo and some of the sort of ideas in that space is a very important one because I'm every bit as anti-racist as they are. I'm every bit as committed to getting towards greater racial equality in this country, but I actually think that their ideas are deeply hurtful to that cause.
2: Yeah, I think think that's the 60% of the book I disagree with. So I think we're actually not in a (laughs) super different place on white fragility. But let me try to think about the right way to structure this. Let, let, let me try this before we get to things like the, the the Harper's letter, because the Harper's letter in some ways to me is not a super useful document precisely because it's very carefully constructed. vague. I probably like if if you had written the Harper's letter, I'd been like, good op-ed by Yasha. And. To the extent the Harper's letter is a political document that is read through the lens of signatories and is debated on Twitter, like I have disagreements with sort of what I think people are using it for and how they're using it, but I'm, I think it ends up being like a very deep parsing of a quite vague text. So I, I don't want to get us super lost there. What I'd like to do next is try to disaggregate some of the things that, that we're talking about and worried about, sort of like disaggregate some of the components of the, the speech and cancel culture debate. And, and so let me tell you what I think is here. And then you can tell me like what else you think I'm, is here, what, that I'm missing. So I think there's a question about the boundaries of acceptable debate itself. There's always a range of ideas in the conversation, capital C, that is considered legitimate, like having a big talk about whether or not Jews are innately greedy and selfish and they should be expelled from the country because they pose a danger. That like, there have been times when that was a very legitimate discussion to have. Including, by the way, in the Atlantic. Um, I always love the 1939 I Married a Jew piece, which is just like my favorite. (laughs) Um, No, 1942? I forget which year it was. Anyway. um, So that that used to be a conversation you could have like in polite drawing rooms, and you can't have it now. And I think that's good. So there's a question about whether or not the the debate is actually contracting. Or I think there's an argument that it is actually expanding. Then there's the climate the debate itself happens in, obviously related, but. How comfortable people feel making arguments, how they whether they feel comfortable making mistakes, how things are read, whether or not there's generosity. Um, it is possible to have both a wider debate and a more unpleasant one, which is a, a an argument I maybe lean to. And then I think, and this is also important, I think this gets to some stuff you're arguing in persuasion. There is the power of the institutions that host these debates and how they're changing. Um, whether or not they are able to protect writers who are making dangerous points, whether or not they're able to create in- internally inclusive spaces, but also just like whether or not they have space to make mistakes, whether or not they are insulated from public comment, right? Like how they are run, how powerful the gatekeepers are. All of those feel to me like somewhat separate issues with somewhat separate questions and solutions that are, are, are wrapped up in this argument. But I want to see if that taxonomy makes sense to you are there things, or there are things you want to add or take away from it.
1: I'll have to think about it more. I think that's a reasonable way of breaking it out. So why don't we start going through it in that way and then we can always add things onto it. The one great. note of caution I would sound is that often, you know, the sum is more than its parts. I'm going to offend everybody terribly yes. on this podcast by uh, sharing my favorite uh, quip about the city of Boston, which I've lived in for a good number of years, which is that it's a lot less than the sum of its parts. When you look at the ingredient elements, it should be great, but somehow it doesn't add up to a city. Um, I think in a sort of inverse way, it might be that each of these issues doesn't look so shocking, but you put them together and you get to a situation where you know the majority or a huge number of journalists and writers in the progressive space really feel like they have to watch their mouth with everything they say. And one wrong utterance or one unpopular opinion is going to have such severe professional consequences for them that it's better to avoid doing that. And again, my concern about that is not about the individual writers and their fates, though I care about that too, it's about the way in which that constricts what the readers of those progressive organizations are actually able uh, to read, to make sense of the world, and the success with which we are able to take on, for example, people like Donald Trump. So just, just, just to put that as a sort of preview of what my response at the very end might be, uh, but with that, I'm very happy to go through your taxonomy and sort of debate these points sort of bit by bit.
3: box.
2: So let's start with the boundaries of debate itself. There's this concept in journalism, it comes from the, the 80s actually, about spheres. And, and the argument is that in journalism, there are sort of three spheres that ideas are put into. And I find this more helpful than sort of talking about freedom of speech, because I don't think we're dealing with laws passed to constrict speech. I think we're dealing with the spheres. So the, the argument was, that journalists put things into spheres of consensus which is like America usually pretty good uh traditionally has been a sphere of consensus idea um spheres of deviance things that are just considered ideas that are outside the boundaries of the debate which you know as I was saying a second ago like our Jews innately selfish greedy and should be expelled from the country um and then the sphere of legitimate controversy and My view is that the sphere of legitimate controversy is changing, has changed quite rapidly over the past, let's call it, 20 years. It is both contracting and expanding, but I'm not truly sure that I believe that it is contracted more than it is expanded. When I think about when I came into journalism in 2005 or when I started paying close attention, which is more around 2000, you could not, to a first approximation, be an outright socialist at most of the mainstream big institutions. Like socialism was just considered a ridiculous view, drug decriminalization had very few loud proponents. Um, ideas that are now taken as much more mainstream around gender expression, like you wouldn't, like you would not have been um, a, 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 okay saying. Now there are also ways that the sphere has gotten smaller that people are trying to push ideas that were mainstream ten years ago into a sphere of deviance. But but I want to ask you on on this question: Do you think the sphere of legitimate controversy today? is larger or smaller than it was twenty years ago
1: i think I think it's hard to judge whether it's larger or smaller and I think broadly speaking I might agree uh, with your overall judgment of it but I mean certainly in some ways it's gotten bigger in some ways it's gotten smaller the sort of overall judgment um, uh, of whether sort of the total amount of sphere of legitimate disagreement is higher or lower is is hard to make but I do think that the question should go a little bit beyond that because i think two things have changed one which worries about the country and one which should worry us about the extent to which people are free to go beyond the sphere of legitimate disagreement so what worries me about the country is that 15 or 20 years ago there was one sphere of legitimate disagreement and it was largely unified. I mean, you know, if your ecosystem was on the right, it was a little bit different. If it says ecosystem was on the left, it was a little bit different, but those two actually went so far apart. You could think about this as one holistic system. I think today it makes no sense at all to conceptualize it as one holistic system. If you're on the right, then, you know, honest piercing criticism of Donald Trump is outside the sphere of legitimate disagreement. You will be canceled by the right if you criticize Donald Trump, you know, within those institutions. Or we can go over to the left, fine, um, but within the right, that is outside the sphere of legitimate disagreement. Now on the left, uh, obviously, you know, neither you or I have a moment's fear before tweeting, uh, you know, the harshest and uh, usually justified um, uh, condemnations of Donald Trump, uh, but there's a whole set of other things where we're very careful about how we express ourselves. And uh, we might sometimes not uh, say it at all because we think uh, actually this might have consequences, right? So I think the sort of splintering of uh, this taxonomy into two different halves uh, is one of the main things that has happened over the last 20, 30 years. Um, And I think that has bad consequences for society. I think it does make us more polarized as you argue in your book. I think it does make us um uh, much less likely to be swayed by evidence i think it makes us uh, much more likely to double down on people like donald trump if that's the sphere you inhabit so that's sort of one point
2: let me hold you on that point for one second because i want to back i want to back up on something that i think is interesting and i want to pull apart it seems i i think it is true and it's actually on my list to talk to you about that um I think institutions used to contain a lot of disagreement. This is true for the political parties, and it was true for media institutions. And I think increasingly, disagreement is now polarizing into conflicts between institutions. So I think that is true. But what you're just saying, I mean, there are a lot of not like Republican politicians, but although I think that's a more normal thing that it, it is difficult for them to criticize the president. But I mean, there are a lot of right-leaning people who are still right-leaning, like widely seen as right-leaning, who are very critical of Donald Trump. I mean, AI is full of people like this, say Yuval Levin. And if you go back a couple decades, something I was thinking about while, while thinking about this podcast was in 97, Marty Peretz just fired. He just fired Michael Kelly because Michael Kelly was too hard on Al Gore. Just fired him. And so the idea that there have been like within political coalitions consequences for a very long time um, when people felt like you were betraying the political coalition. I don't think that's as new. I think that what feels newer to people is that a lot more of this plays out in public and they can see it. But that's one reason I'm sometimes a little skeptical. This will go to what I'm going to say on culture because I am worried about it. But this is sometimes why I'm skeptical it's worse than it was in the past. What I think often is true is it's more transparent than it was in the past. But I suspect, and I don't have data on this, but the problem is, nor does anybody else, That there were more firings for and fewer and more non-hirings to enforce consensus in the media atmosphere of 30 years ago than there are today. I can't prove it and I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I remember a lot of people getting fired constantly for idiosyncratic reasons, and that was just like understood as a way these sort of small magazines worked, right? Like if you were The Nation or The New Republic or The National Review, just like weird things happen to you all the time. There's like a well-known thing, and I can't say for sure if it is true, but like it has long been a rumor that David Brooks was never made editor of The National Review because Buckley didn't feel like it should be handed to someone who's Jewish. Like these things were very much in the media, but you didn't see them as publicly as you do now.
1: You know, I think it would take uh, five more podcasts to get to the bottom of this question and we probably should, you know- oh, we've already done four, so why not so just on. go well, for it? that's that. right, why not go <laughs> for it? But I think, you know, let's, 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 let's take for a moment, for the sake of argument, that your argument is right. Well, what implications should we take from that? Should we take from that the implication that we should be less worried about it today? Or should we take from that the implication that if I'd been alive then, um, or, or if I had been a writer then, if I'd been an adult then, Um, I hope that I would have stood up for those people. I hope that I would have said, you know what, this is not a reason why people should get fired. Um, And there's something wrong with this. So, you know, by and large, I agree that America today is a much more just and much better place than it was 50 years ago. In fact, one of the things that I think is crazy about people like Robin DiAngelo is that they seem to deny that point. Um, I think we're in a much better place on most things than we were 50 years ago, and we have a good chance of being in a much better place 50 years hence uh, than we are today, and that's what I hope to 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 help do with my writing and with my activism and with everything else. Now, um, is that true in the specific environment of a media? I'm a little bit more skeptical in this particular context, but 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 perhaps so. And you know what? There would actually be reason to be more optimistic. But what I certainly wouldn't take from that is the idea that we should put up with that today, or that it's not pernicious today, or that it doesn't have very negative consequences for our discourse today. Uh, because it also was there 20 or 30 years ago. No,
2: but but so this, I agree with you. And and I, I agree that it can be a diversionary tactic to say that something happened before and as such, you can't worry about it today. But this is actually why I use my taxonomy here, because it's going to bring us back to the culture in which these debates are, are, are taking place. The reason I make that distinction is that if it is the case that it is less true today that people get arbitrarily fired at their institutions for positions and opinions they hold and that a wider range of people can get hired because a wider range of views are represented across the institutional set. Like that actually, that 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 has implications for what we are or are not needing to solve here.
1: But perhaps- but On can culture. I, can yeah, I, please. No, no but, because I, did, I, I, I said I had two points and I only made my first. Oh, I apologize, because yes. I said, because I think the other important thing is that the examples you mentioned are ones that define which part of a political coalition you are right? So it's one of the first pieces in Persuasion, by the way, we had a piece arguing that we should get rid of uh, at-will employment and ensure that people can only be fired for just cause. I think there's all kinds of reasons, good classical social democratic reasons for preferring just cause uh, firings to uh, just cause employment contracts to at-will employment contracts. But one of them is that it makes it much harder uh, for companies to, uh, you know, sacrifice people like David Shaw and these odd sort of um, uh, social media panics. And so, uh, ensuring that it's for just cause is, is, I think, an important thing. But, but, but here's the thing that's interesting, which is, you're always going to have basic political coalitions, right? Civis Analytics is a progressive data firm, and if one of the employees suddenly had an awakening and decided that you know Donald Trump is the best thing ever, and really they want to uh, make sure that Donald Trump wins again in 2020, it is understandable why that would make their position at Civis Analytics. Uh, very complicated, right? Um, And when you're talking about uh, this person who got fired from the New Republic back in the nineties, because they were very critical of Al Gore, um, that's approaching the same kind of territory. There's a couple of questions that uh, define the basic dividing line between left and right, between Democrats and Republicans. um, And if you're on the wrong side of that, that can create problems for you. I I will still mostly oppose those kinds of firings. I still think we should, uh, sort of tolerate a lot more disagreement on those things. But I think what we often see today is that there is sort of, you know, 40 different positions on 40 different issues on which there is a very, very clear uh progressive party line. And you can be in agreement on 39 out of 40 of those. You can be on strong agreement in 39 out of 40 on those. But if you publicly admit to being in disagreement on the 40th of those issues, then you're not just fired from a job, potentially, you're being made out to be an evil person, a bigot, uh, and so on and so forth. And that, I think, is just not a helpful way of running the discussion. And that seems to me like it may be new.
2: This, I think, is probably where we actually have some disagreement. I don't think that is true beyond the realm of anecdote, at least in journalistic institutions. And... I'd like to sort of hear the case that it is. I want to move on to culture in a minute because what I think is happening in many cases, and this will maybe unite us a little bit more, the culture in which this debate is playing out, is that it feels like that. That the experience of becoming the focus of Twitter hate for a day, particularly from people sort of who feel like they're inside your coalition, is so gutting and annihilating. And it really is. Like, people can... Downplay it, but it really does matter that um that that it feels like that. But I would like to hear. Do you have like five examples of people who were sort of like with their institution on most everything, but they had like one like little slip up, and then like at journalistic institutions because. I talk to other editors in chief. I watch how things go in my own industry. I ran one of these places where people. By the way, at the Washington Post, people tried to get me fired all the time. The Media Research Council made a hobby of it. And when I was editor in chief of Vox, people try, tried to gang up and occasionally get me to fire my staffers. And like, I wasn't fired, and I didn't fire anybody for those reasons. And so, not to say like my experience is somehow is everywhere, but. I think there's a perception that people can't ever have a contrary opinion. But like you're at the Atlantic, the Atlantic publishes stuff that pisses people at the Atlantic off all the time. It happens constantly. Um, There's plenty of stuff I disagree with the box. I don't think it's that narrow, but convince me that it is. Convince me that like if you missed up on one out of 40 ideas, you're gone.
1: Well, uh I mean, you know, look, let's 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 discuss even though I think it's in many ways an over discussed case. Um, you know, one that's important because it clearly is uh, a very influential position in journalism, which is James Bennett, um who used to run the op-ed page of the New York Times. Um now, he ran an op-ed as I'm sure many listeners or most listeners of the podcast know by Tom Cotton arguing that we should send in troops. Um Uh, uh, during the protest of the murder of of George Floyd. Um, To be very clear, it's not an op-ed, but I personally would have run because I have a different notion of what my ideal op-ed page would do. I think there's roughly speaking two kinds of models of how you might run an op-ed page. One of them is that you are guided uh, by a broad and uh, not overly narrow, uh, but a a set of values. I think the Atlantic is by and large uh, guided by the values of, Uh, liberal democracy. um, And that defines uh, what isn't isn't, isn't published in those pages. Um, And so as a result, I imagine that if Tom Cotton had uh, offered that op-ed to the Atlantic, the Atlantic probably would have said no, and I would have agreed with that editorial decision. No, that's never been the model of the New York Times. The New York Times in the last four or five years has published an op-ed by the Taliban. It has uh, published an op-ed by Vladimir Putin. It has published an op-ed by uh, Hungarian government propagandists. And the reason for that is that it has a notion of the news and has had a notion of of, of, of of what should be included in an op-ed page, which basically is all the opinion that's fit to print, which is to say, sometimes it can be surprising, smart, moving arguments by people who don't have a particular platform. And sometimes it can be uh, opinions that are important to hear because of who is saying it. So they would not have published uh, an article by Joe Schmo uh, that uh, this is the way that Trump should deal with the protests. But since Tom Cotton is a very influential United States senator, they thought it was important for the uh, public to hear. Now, again, I would not have run that article, but it is squarely and clearly within the tradition of the kinds of things the New York Times publishes. Now, would it be legitimate for the New York Times to change its model to say perhaps we should actually have a different set of values? For what guides our op-eds. Perhaps that's a good idea. We can have a debate about that. I'm not at all opposed to it. Uh, But what they did was to pretend that the op-ed was somehow out of keeping with the tradition of the pages, to pretend that the reason why they were firing James Bennett was over unprofessionalism rather than simply because he happened to uh, tread off a social media firestorm. And that has a chilling effect because it means that every editor and every writer is going to think twice and three times before writing or publishing a controversial argument because they know uh, that even though that's actually the mission supposedly of what they're uh, meant to do in their particular papers, um, if it just happens to uh, piss off enough people on Twitter, they're likely to be out of a job. And not only are they likely to be out of a job, but they're likely to have the organization essentially lie about them on the way out uh, to say that the reason they were fired is not that they had to appease the social media uh, firestorm, uh, but because actually you were bad at your job in your first place.
2: So, I think James Bennett and this op-ed are actually a really interesting case. um and, and I want to put a pin in because I'm again, I think in part it's so relevant because it doesn't happen that often. We've not gone through a rash of op-ed editor firings over the past five years or something. so again i'm I'm not sure that I agree that this generalizes in the way, but I, I take your point of a chilling effect so so so, let's discuss it. I want to separate out two things here, which is the op ed and 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 James Bennett and the conditions in which he left. I feel a little uncomfortable pronouncing strongly on Bennett's firing or resignation or whatever you want to call it. They they've messaged it in different ways at different points. It is very clear to me that the op-ed didn't like fall beneath some conceptual standard for like writing or lying that the New York Times holds. Like that was wrong. And the New York Times claimed that it did, right? The New York Times claimed that it did, which is clearly a lie. Right. They, they run like, I love the New York Times. They run op eds that have things that are untrue in them constantly. Like a big issue I have with op ed pages is that we let opinion writers, we have a low standard for opinion. Um, and we should have a high one. Uh, anyway. So Bennett, as the head of the op ed page is in a managerial role. And there'd been for various reasons, like I know a fair amount of like time scuttlebutt due to my role in the industry. And there'd been for various reasons, like a lot of like eruptions in his tenure. And it's a little unclear to me if what happened here had a kind of like straw that broke the camel's back effect, where it was felt either by Bennett or by his bosses or by both, depending on, on on what could have happened here, that he can no longer lead that team effectively. When you're dealing with a manager, that's not the same as somebody's ideas. James Bennett, in this case, like didn't get fired for an op-ed he wrote. But if you manage a section poorly and you can no longer manage the section, then like whether or not you agree with the underlying op-ed, you still need the Times op-ed page to run well. I am not. Here justifying the firing of him, I'm only explaining like I'm a, I'm a little unclear on it in ways that make me a, 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 a little concerned uh, to, to really take a strong position on it. That said, I think the op-ed itself really calls the center of this conversation into question because here you have an example of words and an argument that get argued for under a free speech Framework, right? Like, and obviously, nobody is entitled to speech on the New York Times op-ed page, but let's just take it at uh, in the sort of semi-metaphoric way people mean it. And yet, these words and that column, if taken seriously, and the reason they were going to be run in the Times op-ed page is the idea, which they said explicitly, that Tom Kahn is somebody whose words have power, and he should be taken seriously and heard. If listened to by the president, they could have led to. Violence from the military against protesters. They could have chilled speech. They could have made it dangerous, even lethal, to speak against the government. Because let's not be fucking idiots about this and pretend that calling in the US military against protesters under the regime of Donald Trump is a safe thing to do, right? Like we all know if we saw that in another country, we know what we're looking at. And so one thing that I feel very caught up on in this is I actually think in some ways that it speaks to some of the difficulties here. There are certain kinds of speech that make other kinds of speech less safe. There are certain kinds of speech that make other people feel unfree to speak. And there is a lot of sympathy in some ways for like, you know, Tom Cotton and and the folks trying to publish him who got on the, you know, got on the wrong side of of Twitter. But when the New York Times journalists were saying like, this makes our journalists, that puts them in danger who are covering these protests. It's not in time. I mean, like that is not a view that like those are the those words could have become bullets. And so I actually think that op-ed is a really interesting question. Like, where does, how do you weigh the cases? Because I think there are a lot of them here. And how do you weigh the systems where if you let one group speak freely and you amplify their speech and give their speech more weight and momentum and power, you are potentially making it dangerous, like literally dangerous, bullets-level dangerous, for another group to speak freely?
1: Well, so uh, look, a couple of points. First of all, as I was saying earlier, I personally would not have published the op-ed. I don't think I would have published the op-ed if I was the New York Times op-ed editor. I certainly wouldn't publish the op-ed in persuasion. So we are sort of agreed on uh, on that. I do think, though, that this argument that what's dangerous about Tom Cotton is his op-ed is just the denial of reality. And it's one of the ways in which this argument for restrictions on free speech is a little bit fake because it's a denial of reality. Look, the thing I don't care one way or the other about the op by Tom Cotton. What I care about is that he is a United States Senator for the state of Arkansas with tremendous influence within the Republican Party and is quite likely, perhaps not more than 50% likely, but has a very good shot at being the next Republican presidential candidate in 2024, right? I wish that we could go and vote him out of office, but unfortunately, that is quite unlikely. And so we all have this feeling of impotence, looking at people like Tom Cotton having power in our country, feeling like we can't do anything about it. And then they get to publish in the New York Times and say, well, that we should have been able to do something about. Because those are spaces that we, in the broadest sense, sort of good, progressive, uh, liberal-minded people control. And so how dare he invade our space? Let's clean our space. But it's not at all clear to me that that would change anything about the underlying situation. It's not at all clear to me that his argument would have been less persuasive if he had given it to the Fox News uh, website to run on Donald Trump than it being in the pages of the New York Times. Um, I, it's not clear to me that it would be good for us to be more ignorant about what people on the right want to do uh, than, we, uh, than we already are Uh, at the moment, because it's honestly hard to listen to day in, day out. And by the way, it's not at all clear to me that Tom Cotton's op-ed worked for him. I mean, I think the sort of whole firestorm over it allowed him to troll the New York Times pretty badly, but the- I mean, it definitely worked for him in that way. (laughs) In that way, it certainly worked for him. But the public turned strongly against that idea in the days after the op-ed, in part because of the the attention from both sides rather than just from the right-wing echo chamber that those ideas got by being published in the New York Times. So again, I personally would not have published the op-ed, but I think this idea that the publication of this op-ed made this country less safe, as opposed to allowing us to see and engage with and criticize those ideas and push back against them, uh, is unclear to me. And either way it's at the margin, because the real problem is that Tom Cotton is a US uh, senator and whether or not he gets to publish an uh, op-ed in the Times once every two years is not going to change that sad fact.
2: Well, we all agree that the real co- problem with Tom Cotton is Tom Cotton. <laughs> I'm not gonna, not gonna argue that, but this does feel a little bit of a dodge.
1: Well, it's now. not Tom Cotton, it's that Tom Cotton has power. I'd happy for Tom Cotton to be Tom Cotton if he's some dude in Arkansas ranting at his neighbors.
2: Yes, Tom Cotton should fully express his Tom Cottonness. It's ness It's a shame um, that he has the position he does. Um, I think this is a little bit of a dodge, right? I think this view that, I would never publish this op-ed. I don't like this op-ed, but I wouldn't have published it as a New York Times op-ed editor. But that said, given that they decided to publish it, the fact that there was like an overwhelming reaction to try to turn people against this op-ed, to try to say this is the kind of speech we should not allow because it makes other speech like it literally endangers the lives of protesters. I think it's, I mean, this is, this is where people get really frustrated in this debate, where they feel like to some degree what they are doing is debate. Like, okay, you wanted to provoke us with this op-ed. You did. You, you won. Here we are. We're furious. I think like putting aside Bennett a little bit, because I think Bennett is like a, a, an outcome of this, but like, I think that there is a, the question in media is not, and this is one of the tricky things is fundamentally not free speech. It's amplification. We operate under scarce terms, right? We have more people who would like to publish in Vox than who we can publish. We have the editorial resources to edit, the money to pay. The New York Times op-ed page has way more people who want to write for the New York Times op-ed page than um, it has slots on the New York Times op-ed page. So you are here often dealing with this question of amplification, right? You're dealing with this question of what are the values underpinning the views you do and don't amplify? And I actually think an interesting um place here, and the reason I I I like the Tom Cotton op-ed as like a as a debate um like locus is that I often think that one of the values for me, I, I give this thought myself. One of the values that helps me decide what to amplify is what do I think is going to lead to a healthier debate? Right. What what kinds of speech do I think will lead to more speech? So I have a lot of right-wing people on this podcast, much more so than most podcasts run by people of my political opinions do. And I've had a lot more people who attack me on this podcast than I think most podcasters do. Like I'm pretty committed to this idea. But I don't have people on this podcast who I think are fundamentally illiberal. I don't have people on this podcast who I think that if you took their ideas seriously, other people will lose the ability to have their ideas heard. And like that's a tricky space to be in, of course, right? And it's a judgment call, But it 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 does speak. I mean, I have noticed that on the Harper's letter on persuasion, there are some people who I would describe as on the right, but there's virtually no Trump supporters. And I don't think that's a crazy idea because I think like true Trumpism is illiberal and doesn't itself believe in free speech. But like that was the problem with the Tom Cotton op-ed. The Tom Cotton op-ed was an illiberal document using a liberal medium to, to to gain influence and there was a a huge counter reaction to that and i think that's part of why in the end that op-ed didn't work if people had been chiller about it and said well you know what we got to hear all ideas um i don't think there would i don't think it would have been as clear that trying to execute a policy like that would have been very dis- would have been a very um politically unwise thing to do
1: Well, but I think it's very important to distinguish between two different forms of criticism. I have no problem at all with criticizing the op-ed, and this is not a dodge, because I too would have been happy to criticize the op-ed. I think I may have done, I'm not sure that that I did or not, but I certainly strongly disagree with its views. Um, And as I put, well, I did put this on Twitter, I, I disagreed with the decision to publish it. I thought it was squarely within the tradition of the New York Times, and that's important to note. Um, but I would, on the whole, rather that the New York Times adopt a broad set of editorial standards that I take to be those of the Atlantic, for I don't want to speak for the Atlantic, than the, the views they have. I was upset when uh, the New York Times published Marine Le Pen. I was upset when the New York Times published Vladimir Putin. I was upset when the New York Times published the Taliban. Uh, and for some of the same reasons, uh, I was upset when they published this particular op ed Now I have no problem at all with people loudly, energetically, even rudely criticizing the op-ed. I don't even have a problem with people criticizing the decision of the New York Times to write to run the op-ed. But I do think we need to preserve the possibility that people make uh, mistakes and misjudgments or that they have a different conception of what the page should be without those kinds of professional consequences because that's where the chilling effect comes in. It's one thing for James Bennett to have a shitty day on Twitter and have to deal with a lot of people he likes and respects telling him he messed up it's another thing for him to lose his job because if he loses his job every other op-ed editor in the country will say oh okay i don't know where the line is right but if i go anywhere close to that line my career might suddenly be down the drains and i certainly don't want that so let's 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 stay well clear of that line and that's where you start to get into self-censorship you start to get into groupthink you start to get into um you know a real constriction of what we can say to each other and what data we can point to to each other uh, and what arguments we can feature on the on the on the sort of left side of the political spectrum
2: so let's use this to move into twitter because i think this really really gets to the next point so We've been talking here about like what is what are the boundaries of like contested debate? Like what kinds of things are people willing to entertain across the set of institutions that I think are understood as in the mainstream of the conversation, which is like not just the New York Times and The Atlantic, but Fox, but also National Review and others, right? There's like a, a kind of conversation that is a, a emergent effect of a media ecosystem. What has changed really dramatically in the past 10 or 15 years is the rise of Twitter as the central network in which journalists are talking to each other, getting their story ideas, paying attention, looking for feedback. It is what like we get at Vox a pretty small percentage of our traffic from Twitter, but the degree to which it is shaping everybody's perceptions is overwhelming. And to my knowledge, this is true for every single newsroom I know of. My view of Twitter is that it has simultaneously expanded debate in certain ways by letting marginalized voices be heard and organized um, by like forcing um, elite kind of gatekeepers to hear from intense minority held opinions they could otherwise ignore. Like there are ways I think like socialism discourse has been really helped by Twitter, really opened up. I think um, racial discourse has been opened up by Twitter in a lot of ways. At the same time, though, Twitter has made it, I think, feel much more dangerous to say almost anything controversial in any direction. And I think it has created, like, I think a lot of the chilled atmosphere that people feel comes from there. And also, like, some of the pressure that institutions feel to get them to make somewhat hasty decisions comes from these debates playing out in Twitter in public, where they, like, feel they have to almost respond to Twitter speed. So I really want to ask you this simple question, like, how much of this problem would disappear for you if Twitter didn't exist? Like, how 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 different do you think that world would be?
1: Mm. So I do think a lot of the problem would disappear, but I want to be very clear about what I mean by that, right? I don't think it's a problem that people get dragged all day long on Twitter, right? I mean, I actually wrote a piece in defense in defense of being ratioed. I think if you're never ratioed, then you're so, so either um, so attuned to the changing winds of opinion within your in-group that you always uh, shut up about uh, what you secretly believe, uh, or you're so unoriginal that you're never out of step with anybody. But either way, if you're never ratioed, then you're sort of a toady rather than somebody who's actually thinking for themselves, which I still take to be the first job of any uh, writer or thinker or academic. Or, well, then I
2: appreciate or, the good work you did trying to get me ratioed the other
1: day. I apologize <laughs> for that. As far, but it was just to make sure that you didn't um, uh, fail what I call the ratio ratio test.
2: Really? Exactly right. It's, it's important. It was important to get ahead on the ratio ratio. Exactly.
1: So, so look, I don't think that there's, you know, I I don't think the problem is that people are afraid of having people shout at them on Twitter. At least I don't think that should be the problem. I think people should just put up with that. I get shouted at on Twitter all day long, and that's fine. I mean, sometimes it's upsetting. Sometimes it puts me in a bad mood, but that is not a restriction on my free speech, right? If I start to worry that when people criticize me on Twitter, then perhaps the dean of my university is gonna think differently about uh, my employment. Or if uh, enough people criticize me on Twitter, then suddenly uh, you know my, my job at a magazine is in doubt. And I therefore start to self-censor uh, out of material fear for my livelihood. That starts to be a real problem. And I do think that a lot of that problem would go away if Twitter went away. Not because what people are upset about is the stuff that's happening on Twitter, but because in the ways you outlined, Twitter is so uh, influential on everything else. Now, I actually have a very sort of random thought on this, which is that I'd never really understood or engaged with Reddit until like half a year ago or so. And then randomly I sort of downloaded the Reddit app and started playing around with it a little bit. Um, And I found it to be a much healthier place in interesting ways. Now to be very clear, there are sub-communities within Reddit that you can opt into which are probably nastier and perhaps more dangerous than than anything on Twitter. Um, But the mainstream communities on Reddit are actually thoughtful, kind, humane, often funny. My favorite uh, subreddit is, am I the asshole? Where people, you know, post about- That is a very
2: good subreddit.
1: It's a wonderful subreddit where people post about, you know, whatever little dramas they have in their lives and they're not quite clear whether they're in the right or they're in the wrong. And I mean, 99 out of 100 times I read the answer to that and it beats the one in various advice columns of major national magazines by a long way. The responses are sensible, informed, humane, broadly I would say progressive in terms of values, uh, but in a way that actually uh, speaks to a huge segment of a population. And why is that? Because the algorithm privileges posts that have the biggest delta, the biggest difference between upwards and downwards. And one of the huge problems I think on Twitter is that there's no costless way of expressing disagreement with a post. You have to do it very publicly through a snarky response or a retweet with a comment. Um, And whereas on Reddit, those posts are buried, they go to the end of the pile. On Twitter, that's the thing that everybody sees. So I think a lot of it is about the sorting mechanism on Twitter, which privileges either just speaking to an in-group in ways that everybody who thinks this is a little bit crazy just doesn't have quite the energy to contend, or the tweets that just get everybody enraged and everybody's talking about it and bashing it and going back and forth for hours.
2: I really think you're missing what makes Reddit work, to, to be honest about this, and I think in a relevant way. It is true, I agree with you, that the Reddit kind of algorithmic dimensions are better than, in, in some ways, than the, the, the Twitter ones. But Those Reddit communities work, first and foremost, because they're communities where there are moderators who set reasonably strict rules that they enforce um, with the application of hundreds and hundreds of monthly uh, man hours. And like they restrict speech, right? I'm not saying you should do that everywhere, but but I really think it's important to note that one reason a place like Reddit often feels better is that it is to a pretty heavy extent moderated. And on those big communities, they have teams of moderators. And I mean, like there's been great journalism in Wired and The Verge and elsewhere where they will go and like embed with the moderators, particularly in some of the tougher communities for a month. And It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to moderate, but it is also deciding when like speech is going to be there and when it's not. I mean, the things that get moderated out of, I love our relationship advice. It's like my favorite place on the internet. A lot of things are not allowed to be there and a lot of kinds of comments are not allowed to be there. Like I love RT. Um, T-E-A. It is the calmest place on the internet. You go there and you know what people are doing, like everyone else are arguing and yelling at you. And then here people are like taking photos of tea. But you know what one of the rules on RT is? You can't talk about whether or not tea is healthy. They have just decided <laughs> that the debates over whether or not tea is actually a health drink are so vicious and polarizing and so overwhelm the system that you're not allowed to have them. And so you can't. Like, I can't go on there and be like, is green tea going to make me live longer? And so I do think something to, to like ask about is, yeah, I think there are a lot of places on Reddit where it like feels a little bit more straightforward to speak freely. Um, there are a lot of places that are horrible. And they just, by the way, in like a pretty controversial move, they deleted the R, the Donald subreddit. They deleted the Chapo Chop House subreddit. They deleted 200 or something subreddits, um, that they felt were in constant violation of civil discourse rules. But they are—they take a much more heavy-handed approach to speech because, and Steve Huffman, the CEO, has said this many times, because they have come to believe that the only way people are going to feel comfortable speaking on their platform is if they feel pretty safe speaking on their platform.
1: Well, so first of all, I think when you look, when you go down some of those threads to the end, you do get quite unpleasant comments. It's just they are not the ones that the algorithm sort of puts forward, right? So on many of those platforms, I mean, there is obviously regulations on certain forms of uncivil speech as there is on Twitter, though perhaps not as well enforced. Um, but a lot of those are content, sort of um, subject domain restrictions, right? Um, so uh, on Am I the Asshole, they don't want uh, relationship questions because they feel like that would completely overwhelm the other kinds of questions and the other kind of questions tend to be more interesting um, than sort of, you know, am I in the right or is my girlfriend in the right on this sort of whatever sort of little uh, domestic tiff. Um, So they're saying, those kinds of things we don't allow. But a very wide range of comments is allowed in terms of, you know, who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And when you look carefully, there are plenty of those that are unpleasant and pretty uncivil and inflammatory. uh, And they're there. They haven't been banned. The moderators haven't uh, sort of banished them. uh, But the algorithm doesn't help to propel those forward. So, you know, I mean, we can go back and forth on Reddit. Um, but but I certainly think the algorithm plays a big part here.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact. Helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
2: I want to talk about the role the word safe plays in this conversation. It's come up a couple times. It has come up in... To like be emotionally honest about this, I am unbelievably furious about how my colleague Emily Vanderwerf has been treated. Um, I thought she... She wrote a letter about our other colleague signing this Harper's thing, and just said like because of a lot of the the voices on that letter who have been very um, anti-trans, like she didn't want her colleague reprimanded or fired or anything, but like this kind of thing like it it made her feel unsafe at her workplace. And I don't want to put this on Vox. I just want to note that that's like happening in my emotional sphere in this. But I I don't want to speak for my colleagues, but. To me, and this is, I think, the place where I come down most differently from a lot of um, folks that I otherwise feel an alliance with when it comes to this conversation. This just seems to me to be a debate from all sides about people wanting to feel safe and people believing a, a background level of safety is necessary for them to do their jobs well and to, to, to do their jobs openly. And some people are legitimately less safe in the world we live in trans people are a good example uh, of this like there is a lot of government legislation both in practice and currently being debated by the way that is like meant to make their lives miserable meant to make it hard for them to live their lives normally there are they face harassment and danger on the street every day that I don't like they live in a world where the feeling of unsafety is much closer at hand than it is to me um that doesn't take away from me from feeling that like everybody needs a feeling of safety to to speak well but That is why I am so frustrated in these debates when I feel like there is so little attention given. I think what ends up polarizing this debate is this question of, do you feel that people are being self-interested in it? Do you feel that they are actively trying to create a safe environment where many people can speak and be heard? Or are they just trying to create a safe environment for themselves and they will happily... Brigade attack, um, like delegitimize, refuse to hear, like other people when they ask for safety too. And so, like one of my like big things in this is like I am looking for how people treat others to see what they really believe about creating like a like a like an open culture of debate and 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 exchange and dialogue. And I feel like people are really shitty about this word safe. I feel like so many people want to feel safe, and I wish that would give them empathy for people who don't. And instead, I feel like their feeling of unsafety. Makes them angrier at the people, like at other people who are feeling unsafe in ways that they think like could constrain them. It's a complicated space, but like, I, I do want to push you on this because I feel like you are sort of on the other side of this one for me. Like, I think this is all about safety. I think you and your colleagues at Persuasion want to feel safe. I think my colleagues want to feel safe. And I think we would have a healthier debate if instead of weaponizing the words free speech and safety, we like accepted that like those things were actually linked for almost everybody.
1: I mean, I think that there is a legitimate interest in feeling safe and there's a legitimate interest in free speech. Um, I do think that there are ways in which those two can be in conflict and and we shouldn't sugarcoat around that. And I think in those cases, the only principled solution is to side with free speech because otherwise you're going to limit and constrict the space of what can be said uh, in ways that are both uh, capricious and arbitrary. And that are very hard to sort of enforce in in, in any kind of uh, reasonable systematic way. So let's so let's talk through this example. I think it might be fruitful. So look, I, I understand that you know many people who are uh, disadvantaged, many people who are who are black or who are gay or lesbian, who are transgender, get terrible attacks uh, on on social media in other ways, and I'm furious about that. Uh, I think absolutely they have a legitimate interest in feeling safe. They have a legitimate interest in platforms like Twitter stepping in much more when people uh, send them threatening messages. I, by the way, have long thought that the police should be much more active when people get uh, rape threats or death threats and so on. Um, I think it's something where, you know, the police basically doesn't really do anything. I don't think that people have a legal right to be able to threaten people. Uh, with physical harm in that way where well, they don't have a legal right to do that. And I think the police should take those cases more seriously. So I'm absolutely on your side in terms of uh, maximizing this fear in which people feel safe to speak their mind uh, without having to fear getting those kinds of vile and illegal uh, threats to their life and 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 well-being. I do think it's important, though, that in this debate, often this idea of safety is invoked to say that if somebody says something that I disagree with, or they say something that I consider that I have decreed to, to be an unacceptable opinion, the expression of that opinion makes me unsafe. And so, uh, you know, that to me is one of the things that happened in that letter that it was saying by signing this Harper's letter, one of my colleagues has made my work environment unsafe. And for I recognize the legitimate interest and the desire to feel safe, and for I recognize um, some of the harassment that can come the way of vulnerable people when we speak out about this, I think it's just very important to reject that principle on the merits, the idea that somebody can make your work environment unsafe, even though they always treat you in a courteous way in person because they've signed a letter that you disagree with and that other people that you disagree with have also signed. If we adopt that as a general principle of public discourse, then you can really just shut down anything you disagree with on an important topic uh, using the language of safety. And while I have deep sympathy for the real underlying interest in feeling safe, and while I recognize that many people have good reason not to feel safe in the current public discourse, I think giving in to that would be a, a little bit the equivalent of a debate early on. I, I get that white fragility is a is a real thing. I get that uh, some people can have strange responses. When uh, I want to
2: hold on the term "giving into to that because I think this is actually where the the thing the thing parts. I think people make a very terrible mistake. When they assume that like when people explain what is happening to them, when speech is not just an abstraction and a fun debate, when people whose rights really are up for debate in the way that my rights tend to not be up for debate, that like the word safety there is real like their safety actually is under threat and like, One thing is like you and I both know this on a very deep level. We do what we do because we think words matter ultimately for people's safety, right? The reason you're worried about and you write so much about authoritarian populism is you're hoping your words in some way will make a a better world. Obviously, somebody doing the opposite thing of you and writing in favor of authoritarian populism is using words in a way that could make people unsafe. Now, it's not to say like we can't or shouldn't have debates, but having debates over whether or not an idea like trans people are mentally ill which is an idea that many people like Ben Shapiro on the right like hold and trumpet and um I don't know everybody who signed the letter but like there's a lot of trying to delegitimize like just trans people like moving through life and that is a thing that really does um like affect their safety and i think when folks say that what you don't it didn't mean here and it often doesn't mean like i want this person fired it means I want this understood. It means that like in the same way that we're talking about the cotton thing, that like this is an argument. This argument say that like trans people are mentally ill, which again, like is made by very well-known commentators on the national stage right now. And is as far as I can tell, basically held by this White House. Like this is an argument that is in its way going to be chilling to speech and not just speech, but the ability people have to live their lives. And this to me is like where I kind of get off the bus. I think I basically agree with you like on all like on a lot of the big value questions here and like you I think know pretty well that like I do my work and live my life in a spirit of open debate and I like try to keep a pretty big space for that um including having this conversation but I like want to see from the free speech people more of a recognition and concern this is my core thing I want to see them treat the folks who Like really do operate, I think, under much more significant restrictions on speech with a little bit more seriousness. And that doesn't mean not worrying about their part of it too, right? Like, I don't think you should have a chilling effect in like where you can't say like, I don't know. I don't like the police abolition like idea. I think you need police to fight violent crime. Um, but I do want to see like, I don't want to see it sort of like waved away, right? Like that, like, yeah, of course, like that's a big deal, but like, let's get back to whether or not like I can write the things I want to write in my magazine, you know, when I'm like a senior editor there. um, I like, I want to hold on that for a minute and I'd like to see work done to come up with like what I really thought about the letter was like, I'm fine with like basically what the letter said. I just want to see like a code of conduct that is actually like, here's how we're going to act and operate to make this the speech space safer for everyone and to make it possible for them to operate in it. And that's sometimes what I don't see. Like what I saw was like Emily spoke up against this letter. And then all of these people who say they are on the side of the open debate in the letter, they like massed a Twitter mob against her and she spent days getting death threats. And so like what I see is her speech was actually quite really constrained when she like did not want to constrain other people. Like she wanted to say what was true for her. And, like, did not want her colleague, like, disciplined over it and was very explicit about that. But just, like, that to me, like, she wanted to have, she was trying to have more of a debate than people are giving her credit for. And people responded by trying to drive her out of the debate. And, like, I want to see the people who care about debate care about that, not just wave it away.
1: Well, but again, I do think that there's a distinction between having a debate and whether or not people should be fired or fear being fired. Yeah, but that wasn't an issue Well, I don't don't, don't think that that's a reasonable construction because as you know, organizations have a legal duty to avoid creating hostile workplaces. I'm in the organization,
2: so I can say my construction of this is reasonable.
1: I understand that, but you can see why people outside the organization very reasonably came to the conclusion that the the invocation of a hostile workplace is something that potentially put somebody's job in danger that that writing a letter to one's mutual bosses goes beyond public disagreement so I think what the strong reaction to that public letter was a product of is that it wasn't you know hey here's the reasons why I think that this letter is bad here's the reasons why I think it's very bad that my colleague signed this letter here's why I think this this letter misses out a lot of things, all of which is completely legitimate I think accepting that we are moving towards a world in which when somebody uh, signs a public letter that some of their colleagues disagree with, those colleagues will then write an you know a public letter to their bosses saying that you know the signature on a letter like that creates a hostile work environment. that may not have put the job of your you know very established uh, and very successful colleague into doubt but that would absolutely create a giant chilling effect for anybody who thinks about, Expressing their opinions on controversial topics, so I think that the reason why the why why the response was 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 strong from people who signed the letter was that they did see that as one of the things that really is at issue. That we're happy to be criticised. We're happy to have this debate out on Twitter in as fierce terms as possible. But when the response to disagreement about a topic, when we respond to disagreement about a question like free speech, is a letter to one's bosses that says that the work environment has become uh, unsafe or hostile because of uh, that letter, um that absolutely chills free speech. And I recognize so, that Emma's. So this, is, will where not have had that, that this is where I want to push on. This is where I want to push on about it. Okay, good.
2: Because I want to take the point. Um because I agree that like it is important that people are able to debate things. Um not literally everything, but but most things. But the place where I want to, the place where I think this gets very complicated and we're not going to solve it on this podcast, but I want to flag it because I like have been talking to a lot of people on both sides of this argument, both for my internal professional reasons and for my, my journalistic reasons. And again, going a little bit to the Tom Cotton situation as well, it is the case that words affect the environments in which people live. It is the case that political coalitions affect the environments in which people live. And sometimes what this debate can feel like is a bunch of folks saying, Hey, look, you've created a like somewhat vague chilling effect and we need to take that super seriously when you use these words. And then somebody else like says, like in my life, these are what these words actually mean, what they tangibly become. And what's said to them is like, how dare you like try to debate that? How dare you try to like have that? I recognize that like the way you read those words, right? I hear you when you say the way you read those words is like not even necessarily the way I read them. It's like, it's a, it's trying to move something where it can like no longer, like nobody can sign a letter that is like vague in its intentions. And, you know, like it's, it's walling things off the debate. But like, I actually think a more nuanced point is being made here. Like, I think the debate is trying to be had about like, What are the conditions under which trans people can speak and can live safe lives? Not just have safe speech, but live safe lives. And I worry sometimes, like in a pretty real and direct way, that the reaction to people speaking about the existential stakes of politics and punditry for them is to say, like, is to close down their ability to have a needed debate by telling them they're stifling debate. And I'm not saying it's not a complicated spacer because I recognize it is. I'll use one other example that I think is a little easier. Years ago when I was at the Washington Post, Joe Lieberman, um, said he would kill the healthcare bill if it included a public option. And I said that Joe Lieberman's, uh, was trying to settle a score with the left and that he was willing to cause the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people's lives to do that. And I got a lot of pushback for that, like a lot of angry letters, like people trying to cancel me, got attacked by people in my own institution saying, you know, like, and the argument that got made and Ross Douthat made this argument is that by making it so vivid, by raising, by waving the bloody shirt, as he put it, it made it impossible to have a debate, to have debates about, to bring lives into the conversation made it impossible to just like have a debate about these things. And like my answer to that, where I sort of get the point and I recognize like it's hard if like everybody starts like defaulting to just like, well, you're going to kill everybody. But also lives are in these conversations. And I think that like one of the fundamental, to be generous about it, miscommunications is between the language used by people who's really like it does feel very direct and their lives feel in the line. And so their language is more direct and vivid and alarmed. And the language of people who have a little bit more safety and security feel is reasonable and like to me i would like to try to build more bridge there and i think there's more bridge to be built but i do think it requires then um in some ways like for like i think it would get the other i think it would get people more on your side of this taken more seriously by the folks born more more on my side if there was more effort to recognize like this piece of it and not just dismiss it if this just becomes a fight between two kinds of speech like you're going to have the outcome we sort of all fear um but who knows who wins whereas like somehow I think we're going to have to have like a more holistic understanding of the way people are looking for safety and security. And also, as you put it, the trade-offs that are there, because you can't like you can't just take away the trade-off by telling people not to speak it.
1: Well, so a couple of things. The first is that, you know, in a very concrete way at persuasion, I'm trying to create that open debate and I'm trying to ensure that uh, we, we hear from different values who are committed to, uh, you know, a free society. Um, from the left to to, to, to the right, from uh, different kinds of traditions. Um, and, and I certainly hope to uh, cultivate the, the spirit of persuasion in the sense of um, actually engaging with arguments in a respectful way um, rather than trolling or dunking and so on, right? So that's sort of one way of making this point. Uh, the second, again, is that I really don't think it's, you know, I'm not the sort of civility police here. My point is not that we should all be polite all of the time, even though that's the aspiration I have for persuasion. I think it's perfectly fine for people to strongly disagree with each other. In Germany, um, you know, where I grew up, uh, you're not allowed to call somebody an asshole uh, in your private life, actually, if it's not somebody who you know, um, and you're not allowed to call a politician an asshole. You can be sued for that. I think that's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous restriction of free speech. Um, uh, and so, you know, for I personally uh, try not to call people assholes on Twitter, um, I think, you know, that robust speech is something that, that we should tolerate. And I'm not, you know, so, so your example of sort of uh, what you said about Joe Lieberman, I think is a perfectly uh, acceptable way of criticizing somebody um, for their position. Those are the stakes, as you saw them, but probably in fact are the stakes. Um, and so there's nothing wrong uh, with expressing that in a forceful manner. But I do think that there's a fundamental difference between saying, I think this is a terrible argument. I think here's why that's wrong. I think here's why that makes me unsafe. I think here's why that might cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, as you said about Joe Lieberman, and saying, for saying that, you should be uh, potentially fired. For saying that, you are making it impossible for me to do my job. Or for for co-signing a letter with somebody who has said that, um, you are now creating uh, that kind of environment. I and mean, those are just two very different things. And for people who are still willing to say that, I think an environment in which that might actually influence institutions, in which people have justified fear that for expressing their views, uh, people are going to be writing to their bosses, telling them uh, that uh, they should be fired or telling them uh, that their presence in an institution is an organization. That's going to have a chilling effect on speech uh, that I think we should all take very, very seriously. Now, here's the last point that I want to make on this, which is I don't think that the stakes of this are trivial at all. I, I don't think that this is about, um, you know, the, the signatories of this letter being able to say what they want. I think that this is ultimately about our ability to sustain a vibrant and honest discourse that makes us better at rising to the challenges of this moment, that makes us better at actually uh, achieving a, a thriving, fair, multi-ethnic, uh, multi-gender etc uh, society, um, actually beating people like Donald Trump. So you know the stakes are momentous. I agree I agree with you on that. I just think that um, if we do allow this chilling effect to take place, if we are always watching ourselves about what we're saying and how we're saying it, um, it will ultimately, be a huge present to the kinds of people who, as you're saying with the current White House, are sworn enemies of many of those values that we ultimately share.
2: I think there's a lot of good places to take this conversation, and I, I feel terrible I have to end it. Um, maybe we can do a, a round, whatever round it would be on this, because the thing that I wish we had gotten to talk about here that we didn't is I I would like to talk about what I think would be useful here is sort of a code of conduct. Like I would like to try to think through what are the ways people should actually act and what are the responsibilities they should take on themselves to create the kind of sphere that a lot of folks say they want. Because um, I think that would actually be a, a, a really, like, that's the next step I would like to see people in this debate take on all different sides of it. Um, and maybe we can do it someday, but uh, but we have to end this one here. Um, so as always, uh, three books.
1: I, I should have thought about this harder, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do a shameless uh, Pluck for the persuasion community because one of the great things what we're going to do is to actually have book clubs where uh, leading authors and writers and personalities um, discuss books uh, with the group. Um, so uh, some of the great ones what we have coming up is Anne Applebaum on her very important new book um, on on the threat of, of authoritarianism to democracy. Uh, we have Gary Kasparov. Um, on a wonderful sort of uh, comic, ironic novel uh, called Bad Omens. Um, and we have uh, Jonathan Haidt and Richard Reeves on one of the classic uh, texts on this topic, uh, John Stewart and on Libbit.
2: Yasha Monk, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for this, Ezra.
2: Thank you to Yasha for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Roger Karma for researching. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.